it was terrible. <laughs> the quality of the video is terrible. The quality of the, you know, Instagram, but all of it was just like so, so, so bad. The content, you know, that's the, what I was actually talking about, really great. You know, I'm still proud of the things that I said, but I really wasn't focused on like, let me make the, the prettiest, most high production YouTube video. Let me make the most gorgeous Instagram, you know, carousel that I can possibly make. I was really just focused on, do I enjoy talking about this to stranger humans on the internet? Like, is that something that I can, can uh, you know, convince myself to do without a lot of work on a regular basis? Does it feel fun? Do I enjoy it? Does this seem like something I could see myself doing regularly for a long period of time? It didn't need to be polished for me to answer that question for myself. What it needed to do was be powerful for me personally. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled to have with us today, uh, Phoebe Gavin. And Phoebe is a career coach and executive director of talent and development for news and opinion giant Vox.com. What that really means for her is she spends her time working to make Vox.com the best newsroom in the industry at inclusion, career development, and hiring. Prior to this, she ran her own business that took off during the pandemic and eventually led her to her current role at Box. And we're gonna talk all about that today. Um, prior to that, she held a variety of growth roles, developing audiences for companies like Upworthy, Think Progress, Courts, and the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America Association. Um, in her spare time, uh, which is hard to think that she has spare time, but uh, in her spare time, she teaches an undergraduate course on digital marketing and audience development at George Washington University. And uh, I am so thrilled to have her with us here today. Phoebe, where are you zooming in from? I am zooming in from Alexandria, Virginia, just across the bridge from Washington, D.C. It is very sunny, a little more sunny than I'd prefer, but hey, I'm inside talking to you, so it's great. <laughs> Keeping cool inside, talking for the love of product. Uh, <laughs> so, and actually, your bio is a little bit different than some of the traditional um, uh audiences that we have come on to the show. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I heard you first on the Slate Money um, uh, podcast, The Waves. No, it was The Waves, actually. And you were on there with the Slate Money co-host, Emily Peck, and you were talking about Negotiate Like a Woman. And I reached out to you because I found it to be such a insightful podcast. And I thought there was actually a lot of parallels between what you were talking about, both um, for women to negotiate, but also for product. Um, product is a newer discipline. And as you and I spoke, we actually found that there was parallels between what it's like to be in a new discipline, newer discipline like product, and also your heritage in audience development. Um, and so as we spoke, we saw there was actually a lot of commonality, um, which made you coming on the pod super relevant for anyone thinking about how to get um, the worth, the worthiness of uh, what they bring to an organization. Uh, and so we're just really thrilled to have you here today. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. I'm excited for our conversation. Uh, ditto, ditto. Okay, so um, let's jump right in, Phoebe. You've had uh, quite a quite a like um, rapid growth, you know, over the last like three years, right? I mean, take us back to like 
2018 and what was Phoebe doing in her life at that point versus where you are now and and walk us through how things have changed quite rapidly. Yeah. So uh, 2018, I had, I, I mean, I think it actually makes sense to go just like one year backwards. So 2017, I had just joined Quartz as an audience audience development F editor and which is an individual contributor role. I had on paper taken a step back from a leadership role at a smaller newsroom doing similar work because um, I wanted to be in a place where I could learn from people. And I also wanted to be in a place that would be able to pay me market rate for what I was doing because the previous newsroom that I was working in was a nonprofit newsroom. Um, and I was definitely underpaid against the market for the work that I was doing. And so I sort of killed two birds with one stone by moving into that position, even though on paper it looked like a step back. It ended up being one of the best decisions I could have made in my career because it set me up to learn a ton and to grow into a senior leadership role there at Quartz. Um, I ended up being promoted relatively quickly into director, a director level position leading the team that I had previously been on. And that had really given me an opportunity to both drive a lot of culture change across the newsroom of, around our function, which in the news industry is still relatively new, is still often underappreciated, is still often undercompensated, is still often um, you know, not given the respect and credit it deserves for the kinds of um, results it can drive for an organization. And so in that director level role, I was able to drive a lot of culture change across the cross-functional teams that we worked with, both at the individual contributor level and at the leadership level and at the executive team. And so it was really exciting to step into that role and be able to drive that change. Um, and then um, I also, because I can't help it, uh, did a lot of coaching and sponsorship and mentorship for folks who were in the newsroom who wanted to develop professionally. And that work is very inspiring to me, is some of the most fulfilling work that I have done throughout my career. And those two together really made me excited about moving in a direction that was more focused on culture change, that was more focused on helping people do inner work. And that's when I started sort of experimenting on a side hustle, uh, sort of side hustle status with my coaching business. And I was experimenting working with folks. I was experimenting with content. And one of the things that I talked about a lot on my fledgling YouTube channel was working remotely, being productive remotely, leading remotely. Um, and in 2019, when I was putting those, uh, putting that sort of content out, it wasn't, it was still sort of a niche thing to uh, work in a distributed workplace or a semi-distributed workplace. It was one of those sort of odd things that happened. It was very interesting. Oh, that's surprising. Um, and then in March of 2020, at least here in the United States, everything changed and overnight, everyone needed to become an expert in being productive remotely and leading remotely. And all of a sudden my inbox was full of people with questions and wanting help. And it became clear to me that there was a real need for people, uh, who could help workers, help professionals, help leaders be the best versions of themselves in a distributed workplace. But, you know, we all know how sort of the, the remote revolution turned into the great resignation. And so over time, my coaching practice, sort of the tone and the topics of my coaching practice really shifted from being productive and being a good leader in a remote environment to what am I doing with my life? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Um, and that is generally where I spend most of my time talking to folks now.
Um, I was very public um, on social media about sort of the ways that employers need to change the way that they think about their workers and really think about them as full people and treat them as full people if they want to retain them as we move in this direction where people are really looking for their values alignment in their work and they're really looking for their humanity to be fully recognized at work. And that is what attracted box.com uh, to me. And so senior leadership, some folks from senior leadership saw some of my work, saw some of the things that I was talking about, and they really wanted to have a conversation with me because that was a shift that they were trying to make in their organization. They wanted to be more fully um, cognizant of the needs of their workers as full humans and really wanted support in building policies and programs and initiatives that help them do that better. And that's my focus at Vox. And it was an easy transition to make because as much as I love working with people one-on-one, -on -one, and I absolutely love working with people one-on-one -on -one and still do, it was an opportunity to make change at a, at a really big scale and at an organization that is an industry leader and can really advocate from an organizational uh, um, perspective using its organizational and industry reputation for that kind of treatment of workers. And so um, it was an easy yes, and it's been really exciting to do that work in the organization so far. Fantastic. Okay, so I definitely want to go back at, at one point to kind of your point on um, audience development and it being a new newer feature, because I think that's our newer um, discipline, because I think we have a lot of parallels with product. But let's, for now, keep the conversation more around kind of the coaching and then box. Um, and what you think that impact at scale is that you're having. If you were to kind of extrapolate out and say, this is what I'm enabling Box to do. And this is how I'm reaching not only all the employees, but, you know, kind of walk me through your degrees of, of impact here. Yeah. So I am at an executive level now. Um, and a big uh, part of my work is working with our leaders and our leaders of leaders to make sure that their skill level as managers, as people at leaders is very, very, very high. Um, I think middle management is one of those areas of the organization that are often very underinvested and leadership skills in particular are often very underinvested in. And but those skills, I would even say just as much, if not more than functional skills, make the difference in whether your organization runs well, whether you're able to attract and retain talent, whether your employer brand is in a strong place in your industry. And so investing in your leaders and investing in your leaders of leaders imp improves the experience of your individual contributors who are the biggest layer of your pyramid. And so those investments are the areas where I'm really spending a lot of time. And the other thing that I really like about that is that those leaders who receive those investments, who improve their management te techniques, who are able to connect more um, humanely with their um, direct reports, who are able to inspire them and coach them and mentor them into higher levels of success, they take those skills to the organizations that they move to in the future. Because yes, the folks who are at Vox.com today are at Vox.com today, but they're not going to be at Vox.com forever. But what they learn here, they will take to those future organizations and influence those organizations. Additionally, those individual contributors who are receiving these models from their leaders are going to emulate those models when they become leaders. Because a lot of the ways that we, uh, because leadership is so often underinvested, a lot of the things that we sort of take on and, and, and emulate in our leadership strategies, our, our leadership philosophies are things that we have seen in the past. And so if we see those sorts of models, humane leadership, people-centric leadership, 
um, we're going to bring that into the way that we lead when we become leaders. And so that next generation of leaders is also going to be in a better position to create really great work environments for the folks who will report into them in the future. And so for me, I'm very focused on that network effect that like, yes, I am, I am focused on coaching our leaders of leaders. Yes, I am focusing on our leaders. But more than anything else, I am trying to, through those, um, through the coaching and mentorship that I provide them, have a strong effect on our, um, the widest space of our pyramid and all of the organizations that those folks will move out of and into in the future. So you obviously were um, recruited by an organization that was enlightened enough to have an idea of a vision, a future vision that they saw you could be part of creating that change, right? But for a listener who's maybe, you know, not in a position where that company or their their company has yet made that choice or realized the the benefit of it, what would you say are some good tips to somebody who does want to try and actually affect change at that organization, right? Not about going elsewhere where they already understand the benefit of that, but any tips for someone who's listening and thinking, yes, I believe in this. How do I start to impact change at my own organization? Sure. So one of the things I talk about all the time is that anytime you are asking anyone in your life for a change to do something differently, you are in a negotiation. And so when you're thinking about negotiating well, you want to make sure that you are bringing in all of the best practices there. One thing you want to make sure is that that person, whoever that other entity is, that they know that they are in a negotiation, that they are at the negotiation table with you. A lot of times we can express our requests, our preferences, our problems, our concerns in a way that is not received as a request for change, which means that you are sitting at the negotiation negotiation table, you're sitting at the negotiation table by yourself. Um, so you want to make sure that you are actually explicitly requesting a change. The other thing that we can make a mistake about with uh, negotiation is request is requesting a change that places that other entity, whoever it is, on the other side of the table with us so that it feels adversarial or it feels zero sum. And that is also a mistake. We want to make sure that we are collaborating in that negotiation, that we're both on the same side of the table. And so when we're going back to your example of someone who wants these changes but isn't sure how to advocate for them, you really want to understand the problems and preferences and concerns for the folks that you are trying to get change out of and make sure that you frame your request in a way that is aligned with those problems, those preferences, those aspirations, whatever is important to them. And that's not to say that what's important to you isn't important, but that Venn diagram is not a circle. And so if you're focused on the, on things that are important to you that are not necessarily as big on the radar for that other person, that's going to set you up to where you're on the opposite side of the table. On the, other, uh, on the other hand, if you really focus on those overlaps, these are the things that we both care about. And this change that I'm requesting can help us move forward on this thing that we both care about. Then you're negotiating on the same side of the table. You're on the same team collaborating to solve a problem that you both want to solve. And so take some time to learn about the people who you are going to need to request change from. What is important to them? What do they care about? What do they prioritize? And how can you frame your request so that it is in service of whatever that thing is? And again, that's not to say that whatever is important to you isn't important, but bringing that to the table is not necessarily going to be something that helps your negotiation become more effective. What is going to make your negotiation as effective as possible is making sure that you are framing 
your request is as in service of the priorities of the other party. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. I have a, a question for you about coming into this role. Um, you obviously, you know, had built up a business that was high in demand, right? And I think there's a lot of reasons that you mentioned. Um, obviously, the remote working, but also I think you guys had focused quite a bit in, um, you know, equitable, uh, equitable kind of strategies, right, for retaining and attracting uh, diverse talent. Um, you were hitting, right, almost, uh, I think you were saying kind of growth, growth uh, hurdles, right, where you were profitable and you were starting to face kind of growth problems, too much demand, not enough time. Um, and Knox came to you and said, you know, we want, we want you to come on board. What did you, what, what are you looking back at that decision? You know, what do you give to other people when faced with kind of two good choices, right? I mean, for us, you said you're able to go to Vox and you're able to drive impact at scale. So that helped drive your North Star decisioning in that. Um, but how would you advise someone who's in a position lucky enough uh, in a position to, to have two good options and kind of making a decision about what's going to be most rewarding for them, what's going to be most fulfilling for them? Yeah, I, I would I hesitate to frame it as in choosing the best option because that can really put you in a position where you're sort of maximizing instead of satisficing. And so when you're really focused on like, oh, I must get, I, I choose the wrong thing, something bad's going to happen. Or if I choose the wrong thing, I'm going to regret something happening. And it was really important to me as I was facing these two choices to avoid that and to really think about all of the good things that could happen if I focus on um, making the investments in my business that would allow me to solve my growth problems. These, This is what life could look like for me. That's a really exciting life. And if I live that life, I'm going to have a great time. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm going to have a great impact. And I'm going to enjoy um, you know, my lived experience and I'm going to meet my financial goals and all those things are great. If I move in this direction and I take this full-time opportunity at this organization that I admire and these are some of the things that life could look like. And these are some of the ways that I could hit my financial goals. And these are some of the th ways that I could hit my impact goals. And that is all so great. And so it's not whether one is better than the other. It's about which one I would rather have at this point in my life. And so I chose Vox because that was the impact. The thing that I, problem that I was trying to solve in my business was a scale problem. And the problem that they were presenting to me to solve was also a scale problem. And so it was really easy for me to say that at this point in my life, the thing I really care about is being able to solve that scale problem. And this is, they're handing me a scale problem that is very clearly solvable versus me having to figure all of that out for myself and in my own business. And so it was a very easy yes to go in that direction. But I knew that it was still going to be important to me to have that option in the background. And so I changed the way that I thought about my business and the way that I was structuring that business so that it was something that is sort of on the percolator in the background. Things are still happening there. I'm still able to coach folks. I'm still able to do um, some good work in my nights and weekends. I'm still able to think strategically about what that business could look like, you know, three, five, 10 years from now, if I decide I want to step back into it. Um, and maybe that calculation will change. But at this point in my life today, that is the ideal outcome for me. And so really thinking about it in terms of a shorter time scale 
Um, because I know when I'm talking to my clients who are facing career change, sometimes they can really blow that time scale way out where they're thinking about, well, what's going to happen five years from now? What's going to happen 10 years from now? You have no idea. Instead, focusing on what's important in this next year, maybe the next two years, because you will always have the option to uh, work into a different direction if you decide a different direction is the thing that you want to do. Absolutely. You know, you you use the side hustle to start kind of exploring, as you said, like what in what ways people wanted to be um, supported. And you and yourself, you learned a little bit about what drove you and what drove satisfaction. Any any thoughts um, for people who are considering a side hustle on ways to use it to better understand what's good for you at this stage in your life and use it to better understand what drives you, what gives you satisfaction, um, things that you think like, yeah, I, I really got this. I nailed this or conversely, like, whoop, if I could do that again, I would, I would done, done this differently. Yeah. I definitely would recommend starting small and like keeping that time frame really, really tight. Um, you don't have your, the idea that you come up with today doesn't need to be the idea that works perfectly for you 10 years from now. When I first started working on my coaching business, it looked very different than it does now. Incredibly different from the way that it does now. It was much more focused on personal development. It was very much focused on inner work. It really was not very work focused at all. Um, and it moved in that direction because I moved in that direction and because my audience moved in that direction and I responded to what they were telling me. And that's okay. And so when you think about it, if I had really made a hard mental commitment to, I am going to be a personal development coach and I am going to focus on productivity and personal finance. And that is the thing that I care about. And that is what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now. I'm going to have a content-based business, not a coaching-based business. It would have been really difficult for me to make the decision that allowed me to get to the point where I am now, where I was listening to myself and I was listening to my audience. Instead, I was thinking for the next six months, I think I'm going to focus on this, on being a content-based business. I think I'm going to um, focus on, um, you know, personal productivity and personal fulfillment and personal finance. And I'm just going to do that for the next three to six months and see how it feels. And it didn't feel right. And there were certain aspects of it that did feel good. And there were certain aspects of it that didn't feel good. And I wasn't getting the um, responses from my audience that I was expecting to receive. And so I, I gave myself permission to listen to those signals and try something new. And it would have been really difficult for me to do that if I raised a ton of money and set up an S-corp and made a five-year plan and got a giant loan from a bank and like all of these things. I would have been so hard committed to that. I really wanted to get to a place where I felt like I had proof of concept for my you know, business and what I wanted it to be. And I gave myself the time and the space to play and experiment. And that is what I called it. I called it play. I called it experiment. I this experimentation. I didn't call it building a business or running a business because mentally I didn't want to, I knew that I would overcommit to the idea if I framed it up that way. And I found that to be really helpful. And that's what allowed me to iterate to the place where I am now, where my model and my USP and my brand positioning are really dialed in. And they are a very strong reflection of who I am as a person, what do I want, what I want to achieve and what my target audience needs from me. There's so many parallels. Uh, I'm just listening. You know, there's so many parallels in the product world. We think about, you know, product vision um, is the ultimate change we want to see. So we deliver against the company goals and, and then the product strategy and then the MVP and the concept is to stay connected to the signals that tell us whether our strategy is right or wrong. And as you say, give ourselves permission to listen to the feedback that maybe our first bet was wrong. Um, 
So I guess for all of our listeners who do tend to index towards product, approach your uh, your side hustle as a as a lightweight MVP. Um, and I like your I like your idea about self talk. Like this is this is play. This is experimentation because sometimes we do get so wrapped up into we're hitting milestones, we're hitting stages of development, um, and and we can kind of choke on our own narrative that like we have to do it this way, um, which takes all the one I would think the fun, but also as you say, the permission to evolve and be responsive out of it. Yeah. Another thing that it can cause us to do is overinvest in polish instead of overinvesting in the proof of concept. And if you go back to, please don't, but if you do go back to the very, very, very beginning of the content I was producing in sort of version one of my um, coaching business, which was at then a content business, it was terrible. <laughs> the quality of the video is terrible. The quality of the, you know, Instagram, all of it was just like so, so, so bad. The content, you know, that's the, what I was actually talking about, really great. You know, I'm still proud of the things that I said, but I really wasn't focused on like, let me make the, the prettiest, most high production YouTube video. Let me make the most gorgeous Instagram, you know, carousel that I can possibly make. I was really just focused on, do I enjoy talking about this to stranger humans on the internet? Like, is that something that I can, can, uh, you know, convince myself to do without a lot of work on a regular basis? Does it feel fun? Do I enjoy it? Does this seem like something I can see myself doing regularly for a long period of time? It didn't need to be polished for me to answer that question for myself. What it needed to do was be powerful for me personally. And so I really focused on that and like building that proof of concept. And then once that proof of concept was built out and I felt really confident, okay, this is my niche. This is where I want to, what I want to bring to the world. This is how I want to show up. Then I started adding polish on top of that. That's not going to work for everyone, but it worked really well for me and it gave me focus and it prevented me from getting um, hung up on a lot of the distractions that a lot of entrepreneurs can get hung up on. I didn't care about having the most perfect website, the most perfect branding, the most beautiful uh, logo, to have like the the most creative and interesting copy, to have the most innovative ads. Like that was not something that I was focused on. I was focused on making the product good, making it at work as well as it could work, improving to myself that I could show up to an audience with it regularly. And then I let those distractions start to creep in. And now I'm, and really only now am I starting to get to the point where I really want to deeply invest in polish because I know that like the guts of the thing are really good and that I'm not going to change it because those if I would have made those investments up front they would have been wasted because I ended up moving in a totally different direction you're not in product but you're speaking like you're in product I have to tell you (laughs) there's like this uh kind of this knowledge that people know like if you're if you're not slightly embarrassed of your first version that you launch like you you've launched too late I think it was like Reed Hoffman, who said that or something, but most people know, like if your first, if your first version is perfect, like you're not new to market, you're not doing something new, right? You're waiting too long. You're polishing too much upfront, right? So, <laughs> um, I, I really relate to that. Okay. Um, so one last question about kind of where you're at right now and kind of forward looking, and then I want to move into kind of what people who are in newer disciplines or maybe coming from a place where their value isn't as well understood can do um, to to set themselves up for success. But the forward-looking question is more around, I mean, when you and I first met, um, we were in a 
you know, like you said, there, there was a the great resignation. And then we were in this like really hot job seekers market. Um, you had all the choice in the world. And there was also some interesting market trends of like post George uh, Floyd, there was a lot of investment into business or into programs that really invested in DEI, the plus kind of programs for employees. Um, and not that stuff hasn't changed, but there's new layers that are there now, right? So we're headed into what's potentially a down market, potentially a recession. Um, there's been a lot of layoffs that have happened as of recently. We also, at the time of this recording, we are two days, two business days out from the Roe v. Wade um, announcement where corporations have been flooding LinkedIn with posts about they're going to give employees $4,000 or $5,000 to travel to where they need their health care. Um, so all these trends are happening. And I guess my question to you is like, when we think about you and and kind of some of your goals for being on the show, um, right, which are around helping you know, decision makers have tools to lead in a more equitable way and, and also helping those ICs understand individual contributors, understand how to advocate for themselves. What do you think are the big themes that are coming next? You know, what are the areas of real impact that we should be focusing on kind of in this macro climate? Bring it down to, you know, your thinking, Phoebe's thoughts on what's what's next. Yeah, I think it's all about retention. You know, we have kind of, you know, my generation and and you know folks sort of younger than I am, I'm 35, we've really normalized this idea of sort of, you switch jobs every two or three years, it's fine. And it is fine. But I think that we are moving to a place where employers are realizing that um, the reason why we were doing that, the reason why we normalized that is because they, employers, were making it miserable to stay somewhere for more than two or three years. And I think that is the big thing that is changing at folks are really going to be focused on retention and how do we make sure that our best talent is excited about staying here. They're not staying here because they're scared. They're not staying here because they don't feel like they don't have any other options. They are staying here because they love being here doing the work with us. And what that looks like from industry to industry and company to company is going to be different. But it's going to be really important for leaders, especially top leaders, to really think about who are we as a company not what we put on our about page, but who we really are, our DNA as a workplace. And how can we make sure that that is showing up in a way that is supportive to our employees and aligned with their values so that they are excited to show up to work, that we are showing them that we appreciate them in ways that are meaningful to them, not just compensation, but compensation as well, but beyond that so that they know that we appreciate the work that they are doing. We ap appreciate the value that they are creating for this business and for our shareholders and stakeholders so that they are excited to be here. And we're going to start seeing that the companies who are really investing in that are going to become, if they are not already, market leaders because they are going to be more insulated from the labor disruptions that naturally happen in a cyclical economy. Um, they are not going to have to worry about, you know, the great resignation and great resignation 2.0 whenever it comes up they are not going to have to um you know explode their offers that they are giving out to the market when things get hot because they're going to have such a strong employer brand that people are going to want to come there anyway i think that focus on retention and and what retention means to our organization is going to be the big trend going forward 
Is there any work that the company needs to do before they go into retention on making sure they're retaining the right people? Like, um, is there any kind of, you know, picking the right DNA, the right players on the, on the bench type of thing um, that you advise? Definitely. But it still starts with understanding what that DNA is for the organization. You know, who your high performing players are depends on who you want to be as a company. You can have someone on your team who is your absolute best seller for your entire sales team could be someone who is completely misaligned with the people culture that you're create, trying to create. That person who is blowing their sales goals every quarter could be the reason why no one else is. And so the idea of identifying who you want to be as a company, what you want your workplace DNA to be upfront is absolutely the first step. And then really thinking about your talent and who they are and how they're showing up to work against that lens, through that lens, is going to be really key. Another thing that's going to be really important is, um, you know, avoiding the sort of squeaky wheel trap where you're really focused on the folks who are driving the best results or complaining the most, because a lot of times your best performers are sort of waiting in the wings, quietly doing a really good job and not being recognized. And if you are really going systematically through your org chart and thinking, these are the people who are really aligned with our DNA and who we want to be as a workplace and who we want to be as a, as a brand and how we want to show up for our customers, how we want to show up for our other stakeholders. These are the folks who are doing that really well. And so and what are the things that we want to make sure that we are doing to make sure that when they end up against a situation where they're asking themselves, is this the right place for me? Is this the right job for me? The answer is a resounding yes. What are the things that we need to do to make sure that we have a culture where people can talk to their boss and say, I would love to move in this direction. I'm feeling pulled in this direction. And they feel safe to do that so that we have the opportunity to create um, our professional development opportunities that keep them here so that we can continue to benefit from their talent just in a different way. And so um, I really think that it starts with identifying that DNA and then really going through the org chart systematically to find who your high impact performers are and not from a, this is a high impact role in the org chart, but from this individual is a high impact person. And we really want to think about how we can make sure to support them well. I love it. Okay. Very clear. Um, so let's switch to uh, the parallels between audience development and product development. And just to kind of set the scene uh, for our listeners. Um, I think we both both have used kind of similar phrases like, hey, 15 years ago, this role was like maybe didn't even exist in some com in companies or if it did exist, it looked a lot different than what it is today. Um, and when we were chatting, we we were kind of talking about what why is your knowledge and your information so important for product? And the light bulb that went off in my head is that it's really hard to advocate for yourself and to pick a company that recognizes and wants to build a culture that's going to keep keep you when your value isn't really well understood. And um, luckily, you know, we are at the 15 year mark. We're not 15 years in the past. So, you know, audience development and the think product development are are quite, you know, well understood comparatively. But it's still oftentimes, I think you had said it, and I I certainly felt like I completely could see moments in my life where I've had to be like, no, no, that's not what product development product development is not project management, like, you know, and like try to explain what something is. So when we think about how we allow the listeners right now to have tools for advocating for themselves, um, and, and as you say, both a self-compassionate, but also an effective way, 
why is this incredibly important for somebody is who's in a newer discipline um, where their value isn't maybe as well understood? Talk to us a little bit about how you would speak to those those listeners. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely important to focus on developing your ability to pitch what you do in a very versatile way, because whoever the audience is, whoever it is on the other side, they are bringing different sets of interests, different sets of knowledge, different sets of preferences and priorities to the table when you are conveying that message and developing a high level of skill with pitching who you are, what you do has compound benefits over time because every professional decision that you make leads to future professional decisions that you will make. And so it is really worth it to invest in this. But the, the way that I recommend doing it really goes back to what we talked about earlier, that you want to make sure that you're negotiating from the same side of the table, really trying to understand what's important to these other folks. What currency do they transact in at work? Is it, do they care about the impact? Do they care about uh, is it more ego-driven? Is it more making money? Is it more being a market leader? Is it more being perceived as the most innovative? Like, what is what is the thing that they care about? What currency do they transact in at work? And how can you frame what you do as in service of that? And that is the way that, um, you know, I advocated for audience development in newsrooms. You know, audience development was not something that news needed to care about 20 years ago. Like, it really is very, very new that this is something that news folks needed to care about at all. Um, if we go back 30, 50 years, it really the only thing that mattered was circulation. How many households was your newspaper slash magazine showing up in? And that was the only audience number that mattered. That was the that number was the only number that mattered to on the revenue side. It was the only number that mattered on the editorial side. And it was the only number that mattered on your resume. And that is not the case anymore. And we have to be a lot more complex about the way that we bring people into our news brands. And that is what audience development does. But p different people in the newsroom care about that for different reasons. How they reach readers, why they reach readers, the impact they reach, they um, make when they reach readers, it's different for every role. And so I, as an audience development evangelist, have to have a little bit of a file that I can sort of flip through and pull out, oh, okay, this is the person who cares about money. And this is how I talk to them about audience development because they care about money. Oh, okay, this is the person who came to news for altruistic reasons, and they really care about news having a positive impact on the world. This is how I talk to them about audience development. Okay, this is the person who is really... Uh, aspires to be that Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and they really want that sort of ego boost and they want that um, they want that recognition in the industry for what they do. This is how I talk to them about audience development and being able to go through that file and really have all of those options puts me in a position to advocate really well for our function, even for people who are not very well informed, not very well bought into the fact that it should exist and it should be prioritized. And also being open to the fact that it's a process. You're not going to have one exchange with someone, one conversation with someone, and all of a sudden they become a product evangelist. It might, it's going to be a process where you keep going into that file and showing them reasons why they, as a person who prioritizes X, should care about product. And as you keep having that conversation, you move them on the scale to being closer to the kind of person who deeply cares about it. And that is a process that takes time and that's okay. 
But through that process, you improve your organization and you also improve your working relationship with that individual, which is really great. Well, and I think you yourself, you're investing in your visibility within the organization, right? Which I think is incredibly important um, for kind of tying back more to your area of focus, which is, you know, we've got these amazing talents and yet if they're in a, if they're taking the risk of being in your discipline um, or, or going to work for a company uh, that maybe is more of an older school operating model and hasn't experimented with newer disciplines or newer takes on disciplines. Um, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand how important that is to, and it's not perfect, as you say, you're not going to nail it out of the bat, but like to be able to frame you and the value that you're bringing in a way that the person that you're at the table with um, understands and values so that you can get that recognition. Because some of my biggest concerns is that some people, like you said, they're just they're doing good work. They've got their head down. Um, and yeah, they're doing good work that is recognized by someone who understands the discipline. But a lot of times the decision makers on things like compensation or budget or strategy, they're less connected to it. And and the risk is then that that good talent goes unrecognized um, and undeveloped in some ways. Yeah. And it kind of points to another really important strategy, which is power mapping the organization and really understanding how influence moves through the organization. And those folks who are uh, you know, when you identify a nexus of influence, really identify what is important, what is their professional currency? What are they, what do they transact in? And making sure that when you have wins that really align with their currency, whatever that is, that you make sure that they see that, that you find a way to show them, hey, we did a thing and it really supported the goals that you care about. Isn't that cool? All right, see you in a few weeks. And you do that enough times they will start to realize, oh, wow, you know, that person, they're really valuable. And what they do is really valuable. And I should pay attention to them. I should invest in them. I should give them resources. Don't wait for them to ask you the question of like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Actually make sure that you are showing up and showing them regularly. Hey, I'm driving results. Um, and that can be really uncomfortable, especially for people of color, especially for women, especially for non-binary folks, where we are culturally conditioned to sort of make ourselves smaller so that others can be comfortable. And it can be really difficult to build that skill, but it is worth it to work through that discomfort because the payoffs are absolutely massive. And the folks who aren't receiving those cultural messages, the folks who haven't internalized those sort of mental blocks around doing that work are drawing benefits from doing that work. And so I I can't recommend enough, like getting being getting comfortable with the discomfort of tooting your own horn every once in a while. But again, in that frame of what they care about so that you can show them that what you're doing and how you're winning helps them win. Absolutely. Um, any, you know, any resources or tips that you would recommend to anyone who's thinking, all right, I'm going to try what you just said. I'm going to try and put this into practice this year um, that can help them be motivated and inspired to get comfortable with the discomfort. I mean, I find sometimes if I'm going to do something really uncomfortable, it's nice to keep something there that keeps me remembering why I'm doing it. Right. Um, and it helps me feel less alone going through that journey. So any, any tips or anything like that? Oh, you stole all my tips. So I'm sure you're doing it in community. Find other people who are trying to do similar things. Um, find other people in your discipline, even if they're not in your organization. Find other people who, especially if they you know, share other affinities with you, and really um, use them as a resource and use them as a sounding board and celebrate with them when you find wins. 
Um, and then another thing that I really recommend is breaking it into really, really tiny pieces. Um, you know, when you're trying to get yourself to do something new, trying to get yourself to do something uncomfortable, it can feel really big and overwhelming and scary. But if you break it down into really, 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 really tiny pieces of like, I'm just going to try to identify like two people that I think are really important decision makers in, in, in the company that, you know, maybe later I'll do something else with that information. But for now, I'm just going to take 10 minutes to think about who are like two really important people that I want to increase my proximity to. Um, and that's a tiny thing that you can take 10 minutes to do that doesn't maybe doesn't feel as threatening, but it sets you up to do uh, to build the rest of the links in the chain that ultimately end with you having that strong relationship, being really clearly value, be valuable, being visible and valuable at the same time. And that's really helpful. And then the last thing is like do the inner work. One of the things that I talk about a lot with both my clients and um, you know my colleagues at Box is humans are emotional creatures. The human experience is an emotional experience. And as much as we would love to believe that our rational brain is in charge when we're making decisions, it is often driven by emotions and our history with similar experiences. And so doing inner work to really understand like what are what are the emotional states that I am experiencing at work? And are those emotional states interfering with me being able to make decisions that are on behalf of my future self that benefit my future self? And if I find if I'm finding myself frequently in emotional states that are unhelpful, who can help me build my uh, toolbox so that I have more coping mechanisms, more coping skills that I can use to resolve those emotions and unlock action? That could be a therapist, that could be a coach, that could be a mentor, that could be friends and family partners, that could be you know industry colleagues, people in your professional network who can help you do that inner work to process whatever it is that you need to process to unlock action. But I think that that is a really underutilized tool um, is like really recognizing those emotional states and how they influence the decision-making process. So valuable. So valuable and very practical, I would say, actually, to take and be able to put into action. Easier to think about it, probably harder to do it, but I guess we'll start with something small, right? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so we are at the time where I ask you the question that I ask everyone on the show, which is, if we had a museum dedicated to the most important products in the world, they don't need to be the most successful, um, but just something that you think has been an important contribution uh to our world what would you say should go in that museum and why i think the most important thing that should go in that museum is a mechanical watch okay. i think that like our ability to measure time accurately ha is the reason why we haven't been able to build such an advanced society um, it also creates lots of problems as well, <laughs> but um, I am really fascinated with the history of timepieces and timekeeping, and I would definitely put that in the museum. Awesome. I love that. It's a great answer. All right, Beanie, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I can tell you this is a great episode, and there's going to be a lot of value generated from this at scale. So thank you for willingness to come and share your expertise and your story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to support your audience. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. 
Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.